This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today, we look into the future. In collaboration with the ASHA Leader magazine, we're asking experts about how the work is evolving in the fields of audiology and speech-language pathology. We'll talk about what happens when technology empowers clients and changes a clinician's business model. One research audiologist sees the emergence of self-fitting hearing devices as an opportunity rather than a threat. It's a chance for audiologists to define themselves in new ways, she says. Rather than thinking that hearing healthcare is about an audiologist doing a fitting, focus on what it is we want to achieve, then I think that really opens up all sorts of ways that we can be creative and innovative in getting there. Also, we talked to a speech-language pathologist about her experiences delivering telepractice services and the opportunities she's found it creates. There are differences working in person compared to telepractice. There are definitely advantages and disadvantages to both, but research has shown, and I've experienced it myself with my clients, Therapy provided via telepractice seems to allow the amount of therapy time to decrease and is more efficient. That's coming up, but first, with increasing automation, some say how you treat others will become increasingly important. We'll talk to an expert about soft skills, and we'll discuss how the way you interact with the public and your colleagues could make your services and business stand out in a crowd. That's coming up on ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the 2019 ASHA Schools Virtual Town Hall. This online panel discussion will address the need to expand the school-based SLP workforce. Learn more about this online panel discussion and register at asha.org slash town hall. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from the ASHA Continuing Education Registry. You can earn ASHA Continuing Education units by joining the ASHA CE Registry. Learn more at asha.org slash ce. We're turning our attention now to soft skills. And when I say soft skills, I'm talking about the ability to work with other people, things like how you communicate, both verbal and nonverbal. And your attitude in the workplace plays a role in this. You might refer to some of these as interpersonal skills. As automation replaces some hard technical skills and tasks, you might see how clinicians will derive value from specialization in these soft skills. This is a topic you can read more about in the December issue of the ASHA Leader magazine. Joining me now is Carrie Knutson. Carrie is an expert on emotional intelligence, and she shares her knowledge through her work as a school counselor and educator and as a public speaker and performer. When I was at ASHA Connect this past summer, person after person told me how much they enjoyed Carrie's presentation on soft skills. She joins us now from Colorado. Carrie, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Can you think of maybe a specific story or a situation where these soft skills might come into effect? Yeah, I think for me, this all comes in with compliance in terms of when we work with people, like I'm a school counselor, say I have some advice or some ideas about how they might be able to move forward. Many times people don't want to be compliant with something until they feel like you care about them. Like People tend to work more for people they care about than people they don't, or if they feel included, like they feel heard, they feel like they've had things explained to them, they're far more in compliance, uh, willing to be compliant with your suggestions if they feel like you care about them. So I always say feelings first, things second, and soft skills are all about relationships. And what types of ways do these soft skills, where do they manifest themselves? How might we observe them if we're watching a clinician, let's say? Here's an example. When someone, let's say, comes into the room 
and you say, hello, welcome to your appointment. We're doing these tests on you today. Please have a seat. Versus, hey, and you say the person's name. Hey, Carrie, how have you been? It's been six months since I've saw you. How are things going for you? And I don't think it necessarily has to take that more time. It just has to take some intention on your part to make people feel a certain way, make them feel welcome, make them feel heard and seen and remembered. You must spend a lot of time thinking about these skills. And are there any examples that come to mind of times when you've said, wow, this person, be it a clinician or some other part of your life, they have mastery of their soft skills. Can you think of a few times where you've been impressed by someone's ability to include you as a person in their service? Oh, gosh, yes. I always look for that because, you know, I study this and think about it a lot. So when it happens in real life, I always look for examples of, you know, good or bad because I like to take that in. But I have an example of a doctor. I was um, having my first child. Uh, my baby was breached. What is that? There was a lot that had mean. Oh, breach is when the baby is not turned head down. It means their feet down. I was going to have to have a C-section. And I did not want a C-section because I was, I've never been to the hospital before. I never had surgery. And what he did in that moment was so great. He used my name and he said, Carrie, we have some time to talk about how this is going to go. Can you tell me your biggest concerns about the C-section, about what you don't understand? And I'd really like to help you understand that. And it calmed my nerves. It made me feel like he cared about me. And I felt seen as a person, not just another lady having a baby in the hospital who needs a C-section. And I think that's the biggest difference between the hard skill and the soft skill. When we're asked to do tasks that we do routinely, we take for granted that other people have no idea what we're talking about and have never experienced that. Soft skills is the ability to consciously think, wow, the person on the other side of my treatment has no idea what's about to happen to them. They might be scared. They might be confused. Or they might just want a little bit of humanity in the conversation so that they can go on and be compliant with the direction we're going, but they'll feel differently about it. If you can think, how do I want to make people feel when they leave my office, when they leave treatment? What are they going to think about their experience with a speech language pathologist? Do we want them to feel it was good? Do we want them to come back? Do they want them to use our resources or not? And what role do we play in helping facilitate that. It's not only your personal reputation, but it's the reputation of your industry too. Yeah. This is not something that people just apply to their clients as well, right? We use these skills with our coworkers and our colleagues. Oh my gosh, definitely. I'm thinking how much, almost how important it is to do with your colleagues because you see them every day on a regular basis and the difference it can make when you have someone who has soft skills in a work environment, someone who takes time to make you feel comfortable, someone you can go to. Sometimes we're in highly um, competitive fields where um, it's hard to admit like, hey, I don't know what to do with this case or like I'm having a doozy of a time with this client. Like soft skills and relationships, I think, enable us to feel safe having those conversations. Creating soft skills in our work environment with coworkers and colleagues can lead to like work satisfaction, people staying longer. A lot of times people claim one of the reasons they stay at work is because of their relationships at their job is one of the factors that people say, why do you stay in the work that you do if they feel they're part of a team or have colleagues that they care about? That's one reason retention rates go up in, in groups. Any advice for people that are trying to be more mindful of their soft skills, of their interpersonal skills in their work? Definitely. Here, here's the first thing I would say is I often think some people who hear this might be like, oh my gosh, now I have to be all like Susie Sunshine and really positive and like be happy. And so soft skills 
is not that. It's for introverts and extroverts, and it does not require you to change your personality. And it's not meant to feel like something you can't achieve. I think, especially for clinicians who want better outcomes in terms of compliance of their clients and also clients telling them the truth about, you know, how the treatment plan is going or how things are working for them, creating that relationship creates safety, creates comfort. Also, instead of saying, I can't do anything, I always say, think of something you could do. I'm not asking you to do everything, but think of something. There's some simple things that would shift your dynamic and make people feel that they've been seen. What role do you see these soft skills playing in the future of work? It's kind of a broad question. I think when you're thinking about the value, when you're thinking about the world of work long-term, like the value, you can value some things by money. Oh, I can pay less money for this or get a better deal here. But you can't put a price on relationships. And I think people are willing to pay more, drive further, wait longer for someone that they care about or who feels like really cares about them or who is invested in them. And when people have so many choices in the world today about where they'll get their care and how they'll get it and who with, I feel like if we really want to stand out as service providers or as experts in our field or as people who work with other people, one of the easiest ways to stand out is your soft skills, like how you show up with people And the relationships you create, because I feel like that's an intangible that we can control when we may not be able to control costs and other things like that. We can control how we're making people feel and our intention around that. So in terms of the long game for work, I think technology will always evolve and things will get faster. But I still think people will always want that human connection and they will want to feel seen and respected and and heard. And I think their soft skills can go a long way in creating relationships that matter for the long game. Carrie Knudsen is a speaker, an educator, performer, and a school counselor. She speaks professionally on emotional intelligence and how we communicate. Coming up, more on the future of work. We'll talk telepractice with a longtime school-based SLP, and we'll talk about how self-fitted hearing devices could be changing perspectives about how audiologists provide services. This is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the 2019 ASHA Schools Virtual Town Hall. This online panel discussion will address the need to expand the school-based SLP workforce. Learn how your school can attract, prepare, and retain school-based SLPs. Learn more about the town hall and register at asha.org town hall. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from the ASHA Continuing Education Registry. The ASHA CE Registry serves more than 120,000 ASHA members and offers access to opportunities to earn ASHA CEUs to keep your license up to date. Learn more about these and many other benefits at asha.org CE. Changes in technology are often at the heart of evolution in an industry. Look no further than telepractice to see how that is playing out for speech-language pathologists and audiologists. With technology changing how we connect with one another, telepractice is capitalizing on these opportunities, creating new avenues for treatment. We're joined now by Tracy Sippel. Sippel is an SLP, and she runs a consulting company that assists schools in finding telepractice solutions for their needs. It's called SNL Teletherapy Consulting. Tracy, welcome to ASHA Voices. Thank you. Thank you very much. For those that aren't familiar with telepractice, can you give us a brief introduction into what this looks like? Basically, it resembles 
in-person face-to-face therapy that is provided within a school. The student is, instead of sitting at a table with a clinician, is sitting in front of a computer communicating with a clinician that could be located anywhere in the United States, basically. The therapy itself is very similar in terms of materials that we would use, with the exception that they're presented on the computer using a a HIPAA-compliant video conferencing platform that typically the clinician provides. So both the clinician and the client, they both be sitting in front of a computer, looking at each other and participating in treatment. Correct. The face-to-face is basically via the real-time connection. On this episode, we're talking about the future of work. What can you tell us about the role of telepractice going forward? I look to the medical field where they have teledoc and you can meet with your physician online, that type of thing. The popularity and the convenience of it is appealing to a lot of people. And the same thing with telepractice. I think whether we're working with students from their home on the computer, if they're attending school through like a virtual academy versus students that are actually in a brick and mortar setting, the convenience of having a clinician available, basically real time, it just eliminates a lot of the other complicating factors, like trying to find an SOP because of the national shortage. There's no one to fill those vacancies. Let's talk about that for a second. Sure. What are the benefits of telepractice that might make it used more in the future? Well, being able, again, to have a pool of SLPs that are available, a number of people working from home providing telepractice services versus trying to fill a vacancy on site, perhaps an area that's more remote. People don't typically move there very easily. That vacancy is difficult to fill. Telepractice also usually provides you with a pool of SLPs that may have more defined or particular specialties. So you have access to more specialized treatment available. Besides the fact of bilingual, finding bilingual SLPs to fill vacancies on site is very difficult as well. The fact that students are drawn to technology and have a a very high interest in technology and using that technology to our benefit to help students by providing those telepractice services has found to be a huge benefit for for both students motivationally wise, um, as well as clinicians having the flexibility of scheduling students and those types of things, those advantages on the clinical end. Tell me a bit about that. How have students responded to telepractice? Some of the students that tend to have more behavioral issues in an in-person setting. I found that when providing telepractice, those students tend to be more focused. I think because we're on common ground, I'm using a system of technology that they're very comfortable with or familiar with. The amount of behavioral difficulties tends to decrease. Doesn't go away, but tends to be decreased. And I think it equals the playing field, especially for middle schoolers and high schoolers. I have found that typically working in person or on site, there's a lot of stigma about being pulled for speech and language therapy, a lot of attitudes, so to speak. And by using telepractice, I've encountered much more positive feedback from students. They're actually interested in coming. We have that commonality, which before we didn't necessarily have. Have you seen any drawbacks? Honestly, not. No, I I can say that I haven't. The progress has been just as, from my experience anyway, working with students via telepractice has been equal to, if not better than the progress I've seen with students in person. It's not as distracting as it can be. Say we're sitting across the table, a student and myself, and students are going by in the hallway and the bells are ringing. 
by having students in front of a computer with a headset on, anything like that, allows them to be that much more focused. And research has shown there's one study in particular that documents the fact that when compared to face-to-face, what might normally, or excuse me, in person, what might normally take 60 minutes of in-person therapy time can be accomplished within 35 to 40 minutes of telepractice. So you're cutting down the amount of time that a student may need to receive services just because of the fact of technology being such an area and focal point. So it's more efficient. Correct. Correct. More efficient provision of services. There are differences to working in person compared to telepractice. There are definitely advantages and disadvantages to both, but research has shown, and I've experienced it myself with my clients, Therapy provided via telepractice seems to allow the amount of therapy time to decrease and is more efficient. And let's speculate. What do you think is coming next? Hard to say. I see technology continue to change over time. It's probably limited by my lack of augmentative knowledge, but virtual reality and augmented reality seems like it would be um, an interesting way to provide speech and language therapy. So maybe it's a student wearing one of the virtual reality headsets and receiving services that way. I, I, I really don't know, but it's exciting because it's exciting to see. And the more things I see evolving technologically, the more I, my interest has peaked because I'm thinking, ooh, how could I use this for therapy? And how could I use this for telepractice, which is even better. Tracy Sipple is an SLP and she runs a consulting company assisting schools in finding telepractice solutions for their needs. It's called SNL Teletherapy Consulting. Tracy, thank you. Thank you very much. And there could be changes in the world of telepractice, referred to as the Connect for Health Act, a bill that could open opportunities for audiologists and SLPs providing telepractice services, was recently introduced to Congress. The ASHA-endorsed bill would allow federal health officials to lift restrictions on audiologists and SLPs relating to telepractice services provided to Medicare beneficiaries. You can read more about the legislation on the Leader Life blog. Read more about the future of work in the December issue of the ASHA Leader magazine. In it, you can find articles and resources, including information on incorporating soft skills goals into your students' IEPs. Check it out at leader.pubs.asha.org. In the U.S., some are anxiously awaiting new rules from the Food and Drug Administration that will cover over-the-counter hearing aids. And last year, the FDA gave permission to Bose to market a hearing device that consumers can self-fit, program, and control. New technology can disrupt, but it can also bring opportunity. Our next guest is Liz Convery. Liz works in Sydney, Australia as a senior research audiologist for the National Acoustic Laboratories, which is the research division of Hearing Australia. She joined me from Australia to talk about how changing technology in the world of hearing devices and how audiologists might respond to tech that gives consumers more autonomy. I asked Liz to help me understand some of the ways hearing device technology is changing, especially regarding how it affects the consumer-client relationship. 
So I think we need to think about these changes within a larger context. So if you look at the consumer landscape more broadly, we are really operating in a situation where the user, the client, the, the customer has more control than ever before. So I like to think about this as a user-driven model. So when we look at making a decision about purchasing products or services, we tend to look for multiple sources of information to help us make that decision and to guide that decision decision-making process. So authority really is conferred by the user on which sources of information we should trust and which we should not. And in this landscape, professionals are being seen increasingly as consultants. So another resource for information about making this decision rather than a gatekeeper to a particular product or service. And this change has touched all of us. In uh, in hearing healthcare, we, we can't escape that. This is what's happening. And this procession of new technology and new innovations in our field is really following this pattern. We've got devices that can do more than just amplify and process sound. They're now step counters as well, and they monitor all manner of things to do with health. Self-fitting hearing aids are sort of the logical almost conclusion of that, putting everything in the hands of, of the user. So we're seeing a real tip. The balance of power is tipping very much in favor of, of our clients now. I would think that some audiologists might feel threatened by this technology. Absolutely. And one of the conversations I was having recently with some colleagues is that it almost seems to come down to whether we see ourselves as practicing patient-centered care or device-centered care. Now, I know that, you know, any audiologist uh, clinic in town is going to provide hearing aids, but when that's all that you do, and that's your main focus, it is very natural to feel threatened that you see that as being potentially taken away by over-the-counter. But I think that we audiologists are so much more than that. We are not just technicians. We're not just fitters of technology. We provide this very high-quality, holistic hearing health care with all that that involves. And devices and hearing aids are really only one facet of that. So what kind of services then do you think an audiologist might want to advertise or raise awareness of outside of prescribing just devices. Yeah, absolutely. So the psychosocial aspects of living with a hearing loss are probably among the most important but least addressed components of our of our practice. So some of the research that I've done has been looking at hearing loss, especially in the older adult population. So here we're talking permanent hearing loss due to aging or noise exposure. Looking at that through the chronic health condition lens and all the things that are involved with self-managing that day to day. So all the things that you need to do outside of visiting your audiologist. And managing devices and technology is only one small part of that. You need to also think about managing the effect of your hearing loss on your social activities, on your emotional well-being, keeping an eye on whether things are changing and you need to think about different intervention strategies. We have an entire uh, body of research showing that oral rehabilitation and communication programs provide benefit and value. Um, there's all sorts of things about seeking different resources, peer support in the community, consumer advocacy groups to, to give yourself more of a sense of empowerment with your hearing loss. These are all things that we audiologists can really support and provide resources for. And this is nothing to do with any technology. How do you raise awareness for those services? How do you That's encourage a, someone to come in? I think most people out there have this perception that that we provide hearing aids and that's all that we do. And if you look at marketing materials and you look at the way audiology clinics advertise themselves, 
then it's very sensible. Of course, you think that's all they do because that's the focus of their advertising. Even that would be a good starting point. It's a time of change in the industry with these devices giving more autonomy to people. And I'm wondering if there might be another industry, another business that we could look at that's already maybe had a similar situation arise. Is there anything that comes to mind that we might be able to learn from? Absolutely. So my go-to when I talk about this is the photography industry. And I have a special connection to the photography industry because when I was in college, my part-time job was working at a camera shop slash one-hour photo developing place. This was back in the mid-1990s. And the business that I worked for, they were the largest and oldest chain of one-hour photo places in Canada, where I grew up. And they no longer exist because they refuse to change with the times. They refuse to acknowledge the fact that digital was coming. If you define things too narrowly in terms of their processes, and we do a lot of that in audiology, you lose sight of that outcome, that ultimate why, why you're actually doing something. You close the door on innovation because you can only see one way of doing something. And if we focus, I think, in audiology on what it is our ultimate goal is, And I see that as helping people hear better, helping them communicate better, participate more, rather than focusing on the traditional ways that we're used to getting there, rather than thinking that hearing healthcare is about an audiologist doing a fitting, focus on what it is we want to achieve, then I think that really opens up all sorts of ways that we can be creative and innovative in getting there. Liz Convery is a senior research audiologist at the National Acoustic Laboratories in Sydney, Australia. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Check out the December issue of the ASHA Leader for more information on the future of work. You can find it at leader.pubs.asha.org. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the 2019 ASHA Schools Virtual Town Hall. This online panel discussion will address the need to expand the school-based SLP workforce. Learn more about this online panel discussion and register at asha.org slash town dash hall. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from the ASHA Continuing Education Registry. Learn how to earn and track CEUs at asha.org slash CE. Production assistance comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Next time on ASHA Voices... We'll continue our ongoing conversation about changes in how care is paid for on January 1st with the launch of the Patient-Driven Groupings Model, or PDGM. We'll see a shift in how home health care is reimbursed by Medicare. How will these changes compare to what we've seen at skilled nursing facilities under PDPM? That's next time on ASHA Voices.